0: Well, good morning, all. All right, well, we're continuing in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Of course, Acts, chapter 2 begins with that great historical, redemptive historical event of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That precious gift of God, that gift of adoption, that spirit who sheds abroad in our heart. All the truth, all the life, all the greatness, all the blessedness, all the glory of God. As Paul says, if you live by the Spirit, then by the Spirit walk. And that's what we do as Christians. That's our life. He's our life. He's the power of everything in our lives. So this day of Pentecost was that event when Jesus poured out that Spirit. Having received of the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit, he poured it out on all who believe what a blessing so Acts 2 records that event of, of Pentecost Joel is quoted Peter starts to explain what Pentecost is about and first of all he says hey we got to understand the prophet Joel Joel talks about the last days that begin on the day of Pentecost and end in the day of judgment which ushers, ushers in a new heavens and a new earth We've looked at the indictment that Peter then brings after saying, here's what Pentecost is. He says, well, you all have a problem. And your basic problem is is that you had Jesus be attested to you. You saw his miracles, many of you. You certainly had eyewitnesses tell you of his miracles. God affirmed and approved Jesus in your midst, but you killed him. You saw the signs, you saw the wonders, you saw that evidence of God, that the Father, God the Father was with his son, Jesus Christ, that what Jesus Christ said was true. And you wouldn't listen. And many of you uh, just hardened your hearts. God had done everything necessary to approve Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah and Son of God, and you, being fully aware of that approval, participated in his death what a picture of humanity God makes the world God makes human beings God gives each one of us life and breath and all things and what do we do with it but Peter says there's more there's more to human planning and human purpose there's other things in play besides the plottings and the the spiritual darkness of men Peter says, hey, it's by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that you did these things. The God who ultimately created this universe directed the whole process, the whole process of this historic event of the death of Christ. And he directed this whole process for his own eternal purposes. Human responsibility was surely active, it was surely evident, but the overriding dynamic of things in the world, of things in your life, and of things particularly in this, this this great act of redemption by Jesus, uh, this act that will be for all eternity, always be up in front of us all and under us all and around us all, this one great act of redemption run by God, proposed by God, established by God. Our salvation... Never could be, said so this last week, never was, and never will be in the hands of men, including our own. So just remember that. That's what we learn. And this predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, last week, we looked at several aspects of it. There was, well, week before we worked at that, it was a plan. And we have to remember that a plan takes sort of uh, intelligent deliberation. Um, I'm watching science videos this past year and two and a lot of them and they keep trying to say that and it's just so funny they personify, you know, nature. They say we're fools for believing that there's a God but then they just personify nature everywhere. Evolution had to do it, you know. The species had to evolve and, um, you know, the, everything just came together on its own. This, this acting as if inanimate objects basically have purpose and meaning and significance that they deliberate and then collect together on their own. It's, on the one hand, sort of humorous and, on the other hand, sad that they can't see their own foolishness, professing themselves to be wise. Oh, they will tell you they are so wise about their science and their philosophy and their secular worldview, but they become fools. So this plan, this, de- this determination and plan and foreknowledge of God requires intellectual, mental, personal deliberation and formulation that comes to fruition in a decision and a re- resolution and a purpose. A plan is like, okay, I thought about it. Here's the plan. Might be a simple plan. Might be a complex plan. Might be a good plan. Might be a bad plan. But for God, it's a plan that he is going to implement. Throughout the Bible, divine plan and purpose is stamped everywhere. Just remember that as you're reading through the Bible, just you know, pick up on those things. This is God's world. He's in charge of it. He can't abdicate his throne. He's not going to let the wicked do whatever they want. He's not going to let us do whatever we want. Uh, you don't let your children go around and play in the traffic. Uh, you're going to keep them from that, even though they may want to. Um, and God's not going to let his people destroy themselves. He's just, he just won't. There's plan and purpose everywhere. And the plan and purpose here especially focuses on the cross of Christ. And that's what we must get from this. It's a determined plan. The word is, has nothing to do with pre. Again, don't know why that's there. But there's this determined plan of eternal purpose and watchful sovereignty. And I can't imagine any other time in history, if we could say this about it, God, any other time in history, when at the cross... When his son was finally delivered over. And those hours in between when he was taken captive and when he died on that cross, everything that happened, I can't imagine any other time in the history of the universe where God was more focused, more engaged, more determined, and more sovereign. The determined plan and foreknowledge of God. Last week we looked at foreknowledge, some confusion about the term foreknowledge. Again, as we know, some of us had discussions and some of us have had to work through this ourselves. We tend to give a sort of theological definition to foreknowledge that actually isn't in the Bible. And it's more a philosophical definition than really a theological one. We think, well, there's knowledge, there's foreknowledge. God can foretell the future. I mean, it makes sense when you, you know, put it out there in discussion. But when you start reading the Bible, you start going, well, this makes no sense at all because God does not foretell the future. And because of this idea of foretelling, instead of really the true meaning of the word as God uses it, foreknowledge is often used in discussions about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And folks start talking about, well, God chose those who He foresaw would choose him, that kind of thing. And you know the, the, the challenge was that with that is that it just erodes the biblical perspective, number one, that's everywhere but it's based on an unbiblical concept of foreknowledge. So we wanted to consider this last week. What does foreknowledge mean? We look in Isaiah chapter 46, 10 through 13, and just sort of read basically from there this idea that God foretells the future just isn't in the Bible. When God speaks of the future, he says declaring the end from the beginning, things like that, or my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Good pleasure, you know, is in the New Testament. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. He does things according to the good pleasure of his will. Here's a place where the Apostle Paul gets that from. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, this plan, and I will surely do it. And so here is a very a passage that very much illuminates Peter's sort of summary statement we considered in order to understand what foreknowledge means we have to know what knowledge means what does it mean to know something now in our language we kind of have a basic idea of it if we were asked to you know to take a spelling test and give a definition we might have a hard time articulating it but we kind of know what it means but the thing about the scriptures is that there are some usages of knowledge that are sort of standard, how to comprehend something, understand something, whether it's an event, idea, something like that. It can be used to talk about knowing or being acquainted with a person. I know this person. I have a relationship with them. It could be a term of certainty. Uh, Now I know know, that this is going to happen. Now I know that dinner's going to be ready because I can smell it and hear the tops coming off the pots, lids coming off. But there's a usage of the word no in the Bible, and it's a prevalent usage. It's not the dominant usage, but it is prevalent. And it's one that we have to understand. In Genesis, God is talking to, uh, to Abraham, or really talking with himself. Here's God taking counsel with himself, as it were, and wanting us to see how he's thinking it through. And literally, it should read, For I have known Abraham, I have known him, so that he can command his children and his household after him. And this is a usage of know that is not in the English language, really. And so remember that, that there are, the terminology of Scripture is the terminology of, that God and how God uses it, not how we necessarily use it. I have known him, and it's translated, I have chosen him, which is certainly what it means. We see that again in Amos 3.2. You only have I known or chosen from all the families of the earth. Read Deuteronomy 4.7 and 10 if you want an exposition of that. But, <clears throat> so there's this word foreknowledge. And it just means the same terminology as knowledge but beforehand. Prior knowledge. And this prior knowledge, this word foreknowledge only occurs seven times in the Bible. And that's what's, again, when this is brought up in discussions about God's sovereignty, remember, it's not all over the place. Knowledge is all over the place, but foreknowledge is not. Just remember that. So if someone brings it up to buttress an argument that might be counter the Scripture, just remember that. And it's only used five times with reference to what we might be talking about in the sovereignty of God. Seven times total in the Scripture, five times with reference to the sovereignty of God. There's Romans 8, there's Romans 11, and there's 1 Peter 1, where foreknowledge is combined with election very clearly, and it's almost a synonym for it. Then we have our passage in Peter that we're looking at, the foreknowledge of God here, which means God has something in mind as part of a long standing plan. And we see that usage again just want to remind you of Romans 8.29. And I'm going over this because some folks, some of you, you've dealt with this for decades. So this is old hat to you. This is new, not new for you. But for others, they might be thinking through and might have some issues. And so Romans 8.29 is an important place. And Paul writes, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 8.29. Important passage. Those whom he foreknew. And it has that biblical sense to it of whom he foreknew, not what he foreknew, but whom he foreknew. And has that sense that I've known Abraham. These are people that he knows beforehand. And so there's a sense really of I'm regarding someone with distinguishing love and affection beforehand. Love is all about this passage and all about this term for. <coughs> Sovereignty is everywhere in the passage. God causes all things to work together for good. And this good is about his purpose, his purpose of redemption. According to his purpose, he's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Many brethren, many Christians, many people saved, many folks in eternity, many brothers and sisters forever and ever. God's family. That's what this word for now is about. The focus is clearly on People. Not about what they do, but who they are. He he foreknows them. He chooses them beforehand. God chooses people, those whom he foreknew. And if someone wonders, well, you know, how does this foreknowledge work out? It's the idea that God calls those whom he foreknew would believe on him is kind of not the order that the passage presents it in. Our salvation starts with God's foreknowledge, not us. He not only foreknows us, chooses us, selects us, identifies us personally, not because there's anything in us. By the way, God chose the Israelites not because they are better than anybody else, but because they were worse. And he tells us so, Deuteronomy 7. So if you're sitting there going, oh, God chose me unto salvation. Well, you better start thinking why. It wasn't because you were good. It wasn't because you were good, had an edge on someone else. Is because God said, you know, I'm really going to show my glory in Steve. I'm going to take this rotten dirtball sinner, and I'm going to turn it into something else. God gets glorified. Starts with foreknowledge. Our glorification begins first in foreknowledge. And then the purpose. God predestined us to be something. And then he called us in time, in our life history, he called us to himself, and he justified us by faith. And one day will glorify us. And that's the pattern of Scripture. Hold on to it, because it's vital. And then closer to our passage is this idea that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Talking about the blood of Christ. He's an unblemished, spotless lamb. Precious blood. And all of this was determined before. Uh, The Greek actually is the casting down of the world. That's the description of it. Caught cast the world down, founded the world. Jesus delivered over by the determined plan and foreknowledge of God. So we've looked at that. And I just kind of thought about it and I worked on this about halfway and then I'm like, okay, I'm running out of time. Do I finish it or do I delete it? It looked easier to finish it, so I did. So you get some of my musings this morning. I had said before, if you trace backwards, like, you know, when did this foreknowledge happen? God did something in foreknowledge. But can we trace this back? Can we get some evidence from it? So we started, in the first place, dealing with Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. And his disciples were just trying to process that the whole time. So Jesus, around 30 AD, predicted what would happen. So that's part of the foreknowledge of God. Pretty close, within a year or two, but foreknowledge. And there might be other passages, but I just thought of Zechariah. You go back to Zechariah in the Bible in the Old Testament about 515 B.C., and there you'll read in chapter 13, smite the shepherd, crucifixion of Christ, and the sheep will be scattered. And you can take it back even further, obviously, to Isaiah 53 around 700 B.C., And I know many of you are thinking of these passages, but it's good to put a date to them. I try to give broad dates in the Bible and then after I have these broad dates, I kind of put everything around those simple broad dates going every increments of 500 years. Isaiah 53, 700 BC. He was wounded for our transgressions. Psalm 22, of course, a big one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 1000 BC, written by David. You can go back to the Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover in 1500 B.C. The counsel of God. The predetermined plan of God. At least we know he started in 1500 B.C. Did he start before that? Well, yeah, we get Genesis 22. Abraham offering his only son. Well, that's around 2000 B.C. So we're going back further. And then, well, gosh, there's Genesis 315. We'll put it on or about 4000 B.C., And there was a promise that there would come a redeemer who would undo the works of the devil. In the process, he would be wounded, but he would undo the works of the devil. So we can go all the way back to creation to identify when God actually was thinking through Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners by a Roman cross. And then finally, of course, what we just read in First Peter, well, you've got to go back even further. You've got to go before the foundation of the world. And so you have this God's thinking, God's purposing, God's sovereignly bringing to pass the death of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we come to the section in Acts twenty, Acts 2, 24 through 28. But God raised him up from the dead. God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And so this is the passage we'll be looking at this morning. Heavenly Father, we do. We come to your throne. and Lord, when we see this panorama of your purpose to save us from our sin, Lord, this is something you've thought about since really, as far as we can tell, forever. It's impossible for us to imagine you not having been bound by time. so all we can do is place even a concept of time called eternity. Well, that's all we can do is place that upon you and think in those terms. And that's the terminology you give us in your word. So we're safe there. Well, Lord, as we think that you planned and purposed all this, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with it. It is our hope. It is our confidence. Lord, we so easily drift from these things. We so easily take up the ideas of the world just not thinking about it. And Lord, just pray it always preserve us in this great reality that we belong to you, that we will always glory in and rejoice in and know and be confident in that we belong to you. Whatever you bring in our lives, we just know that we know that we know it's from your hand. Sometimes we squawk a little bit and complain and get a little whiny, but Lord, bottom line, we all know that you are a good Father and you do all things and work all things together for good because we are part of this great eternal purpose. Lord, this morning we we, we have reviewed about Jesus dying and your hand in it, and now, Lord, your hand in his resurrection. Just pray you would encourage us this morning you would fill us with the basics again of our life with you, of our walk in this world, of our purpose, of our witness. Lord, we're here to give witness of the resurrection of the Son of God. And Lord, every generation before us have come, and some of them have had to deal with, I don't know, Roman Catholicism and and others opposing them, even burning them at the stake, where to talk about God or to have a Bible was was a crime. Um, The people have gone and and they've just had to to work with, gosh, a lot of weird ideas about Christianity, a lot of confusion. And Lord, here we are in this generation, and we have to deal with the pseudo-authority of modern science. And the, the world just more than ever, it seems, having exalted itself against you. And men and their philosophies and humanism haven't exalted themselves against the knowledge of you. And just pray this morning that these simple truths that we will see that this is the power of the gospel. It's the power in our lives. It's our witness. We don't have to take on philosophical terminology to explain Jesus Christ or to explain and present and tell someone about the hope that's in us. We can just talk about the plain, simple words. People may laugh. But Lord, we should never be embarrassed by it. Never think that it, we have to have some exotic speech or fancy words or philosophical jargon or thought processes to present the gospel to other people. Because, Lord, their problem's simple, it's sin. They want to complicate it with everything, fine, but, Lord, their, their, their problem's sin. And there's a simple, powerful response and solution, and it's in Jesus. And his resurrection. So just fill our hearts this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Now the challenge this morning. Where I threw in a couple extras for the uh, review. Is the passage about resurrection. Starts in the verse here. But then it goes through Psalm 16. So I had to go. I'm not going to be able to do Psalm 16. And this verse. So. I wanted to, but uh, you're probably very happy I didn't try. So we're just going to focus on this verse this morning, Acts 2.24. See kind of what it says, and Lord willing, next week, look at Psalm 16. Now, Praetor turns to the theme of the resurrection very quickly. He's going through this. only takes about a minute to, to, to read up to here. And Peter makes an introductory statement about a historical fact. Then he's going to quote Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Then he's going to show how Psalm 16 was written by David. And it will be interesting when we get to it. We know when David wrote Psalm 16 because he wrote it after God made a covenant with him. Because God said that Psalm 16 is David's response to the covenant that God made with him. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. So it's a very critical psalm. It's a very important psalm. Um, And its place isn't just that it's a psalm about the resurrection. But it's a psalm about a resurrection that ties to a king going to heaven and ruling all nations. We'll get to that next week. Peter here, he starts out with a simple statement. But God raised him from the dead. You all killed him. All of you were participants in it. No matter what level you were in society, you were participants in it, and God, you killed him, but God raised him up. That's a simple assertion of a historical fact. Not a lot of words here, but God raised him up. Now, Peter's audience was closer to this historical event pretty much than any other. Christian group or group evaluating Christianity was in history. The first people who heard the first message after the resurrection of the Christ are the closest to the event. And the response of his audience was, as we find out, not to dispute the resurrection. Interesting. That the people who killed him, I mean... What's the first response of people when they get caught in sin? I didn't do it. Okay, didn't happen. I'm going I'm to approach this sin in, in any way I can that doesn't make me the culprit. Blame shifting. Telling people to go look over there. It wasn't me, it was someone else, something else. There's some reason other than my guilt, my own personal guilt involved in the sin and, You don't see any of that in their response to this. And it was a short 40, 50 days ago that Jesus had died and Jesus had risen again. I think that's pretty interesting. The people closest to it, the people who had the most riding on it not be true did not say that the resurrection wasn't true. And we'll see why that's, you know, the resurrection is just points right at everybody in terms of guilt. Now this is a simple assertion of a historical fact. It occurred less than two months previous, and it was corroborated by evidence. At the end of Matthew, you read the... Narrative about, okay, Jesus has risen from the dead. The stone got rolled away. The soldiers you know, were left like, okay, we were supposed to not let this happen, and it did. And the Jews, some of the Jews, went and tried to cover it up, didn't they? They went to the soldiers and said, hey, look, we're going to give you money, and you go around telling everybody that his disciples came and did this. And, you know, when it finally gets to the ears of the... Herod or a Pilate, and you start to get in trouble for failing to not let this happen, we'll take care of it. We'll persuade him not to do anything bad to you. We'll cover for you. So there was an attempt immediately to, again, switch the price tags on the historical fact. Many were aware of this. Now, somebody's trying to cover something up. What does that tell you? It happened. (laughs) Again, Satan always goes too far. He says, well, we'll make a different story. That'll, That'll fix this problem with the resurrection of Jesus. And all he did was corroborate that it happened. That's all that came of it. You always need to learn this in your life. Satan will always go too far. And so if someone's saying this about you that's just not true, don't worry about it. God will take care of it. Satan goes too far. You just worry about the Lord. He'll take care of uh, you as long as you're walking uprightly with him. But there's this evidence of an empty tomb. This is a historical fact. It's also corroborated by eyewitness testimony of Peter and others who had seen Jesus alive. I remember I went to see the movie Risen at the movies, back when you could go to the movies. Um, And I really didn't know what to expect. And I thought it was an interesting movie. I don't know if some of you have seen it. It's basically about the resurrection of Christ and the days after and a Roman soldier who's kind of engaged and interacting with Jesus and the disciples. So it doesn't claim to be biblical, although it's based on sort of a biblical framework. So there's interesting things about it that kind of make you think. What did happen? How did Jesus talk to the disciples? That kind of thing. But I just remember that when this this soldier who's trying to hunt down the disciples, he's crashing into this door in this house, and okay, you know, the disciples aren't there. He goes to the next. The soldiers were everywhere. And the Roman, I guess he was a centurion. He was pretty high up. He opens the door, and there's all the disciples there, and there's Jesus, alive, alive. And he had just sat stood in the movie and watched him die on a cross. And his just his face was just, his response to it was just perfect. What? How did this happen? Okay. Eyewitnesses, people saw Jesus alive and they gave testimony, and these people were not screwballs. They were not oddballs. They were sober-minded men who themselves when they start to give witness, the Holy Spirit comes and heals people. These are men and women who you can believe. They're trustworthy. And in a day when they didn't have computers and they didn't have communication, eyewitness testimony was crucial to society functioning. That's why in the Ten Commandments it says you shall not bear false witness. It doesn't say you shouldn't lie. I mean, that might be part of it, but it says you shouldn't bear false witness because you start having false witnesses in court proceedings when that's the only evidence you can get. If people are lying in their witness bearing, the whole society breaks down. The whole judicial system, which is crucial and foundational to any civilization, it just breaks down. And this thing's just become a mess. A mess. And so eyewitness testimony in that day was everything, and these were credible witnesses, and they remain credible witnesses to this very moment. There's evidence of an empty tomb that people even tried to cover up and unwittingly just demonstrated all the more it happened. There's the eyewitness testimony of Peter and others that they had seen Jesus alive. And, well, this sermon was preached, and what was possibly still going on? The Holy Spirit's coming from heaven on people, right? They're seeing flames of fire. I mean, this was a visible thing. Jesus had gone to heaven, and he had poured out the Holy Spirit, and Peter was saying, God raised him up. That's why this is all happening. And it's not just an empty tomb. That's testimony. It's not just our eyewitness testimony. You're seeing the result of it with your own eyes right now. A Holy Spirit outpour happening then and there before him. God raised him up. Now some folks dispute the resurrection of Jesus on a philosophical grounds. That's why it's good to mix it up with people, even if they, you know, reject you, which happens most of the time, by the way, so be ready. Don't take it personal. They're not rejecting you, Jesus said, they're rejecting me. But on philosophical grounds, and some people are more philosophical than others, but they'll just dance around and give reasons why they don't believe in God, the resurrection. These folks affirm on a stack of philosophy books and ideas that God does not exist, they just know that this is so. Because somehow, some philosophy book or some philosophy or some ideology has proven in their mind that there is no God. Most often, it's their own really, just their opinion, and they might bring in a few what they think are logical reasonings. But in the end, it's an opinion. They affirm on a stack of philosophy books that there's no such thing as miracle. That you cannot have an interruption in the normal processes of the universe by the God who made it. That God can't suspend the laws of physics or bring to bear laws that we don't even know about yet. We think that the only laws of physics that exist are the ones we know. And yet, everybody, all the, they all scratch their heads over black holes, dark matter that doesn't exist, supposed uh, multi universes, multiverses that all it is is a bunch of math, no reality to it. They'll buy all that. But miracle? Oh, that's for foolish people. And they will certainly affirm on a stack of philosophy b- books that there's no such thing as a resurrection. Dead people don't get raised. Sorry to tell you, I'm the philosopher, and I know it all, and I'm sorry to tell you, you're stuck with sin and death because there is no resurrection. Do you realize that's their message? I don't think they realize it. I don't know what they think they're proving. But you're stuck. You got 70 years on this earth, maybe 80, by reason of modern medicine in America, maybe a little more. But it doesn't take long in life to know that no matter what point you are in life, your life's just been nothing but a blink. No matter where you are, it's, gosh, how did I get here? Whether you're 10, whether you're 20, whether you're 50, whether you're 80, it's all a blink. And there's not much time left. You only got so many seconds. You're allotted so many seconds. And they're counting off right now. So you go to the philosophers, and what do you get? You get, well, they're all smart. They all know all this stuff, that there is no God, that there's no intervention of God in the universe, and that the resurrection is fool's talk, and you're just stuck with sin and death. Have a great life. That is all they have to offer. I don't know why so many people flock to it, but they do. They do. The problem with the philosophy books, the philosophers, the philosophies, the ideologies, is that they have no authority on this matter. See, if you were to ask me about computers, and particularly databases, I could tell you a lot of things. And if you were to listen and had a database challenge and you needed to fix it, you might do well. Not, I don't have everything. I don't know everything. I remember there was, I was, had just gone on to the job. I was in this plant. Um, they did electrical stuff. They made their own motors, traction motors for tanks, Sherman tanks, back then anyway, and golf carts. They have, they have electrical traction motors in there. And so this plant made them from scratch. They brought in all the raw materials. N- nothing built anywhere else. You built it all from scratch. It was, it was a pretty cool place. But I went back into this one room where there's the maintenance guy, because you have all these machines, and this factory was as old as the hills, and all the machines just looked like you know, they, they weren't going to work at all, but they seemed to work fine. And so I went back and said, well, what did, I asked the guy, I said, you know, what, what do you know about this machine over here? And he just looked at me and he said, everything. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. So I've adopted that answer now. When someone asks me, what do you know about a database? I just say, well, everything. And uh, It's not that interesting, the side story. But that's what philosophers are like. We know everything, and we know there's no God. And we know there's no such thing as God intervening, because he doesn't exist. And we know certainly there's no such thing as resurrection. What do you believe in all that stuff for? Come with us, and you'll die in your sin, and everything will go well. Well, the problem is they have no authority on this matter. If you had come and asked me in the plant, say, what about this machine? I could tell you about databases, but I couldn't tell you a thing about a cutting machine. I had some knowledge and good enough knowledge to help you in the area of databases, but I couldn't help you for a second on that cutting machine. And that's philosophers and their books and their ideas and their stories and all the movies made that incorporate the philosophies and try to sell them to you. All they can present is human ideas and debate about human ideas and so far those ideas have failed, haven't they? Has all the philosophers and philosophies and the governments based on those philosophies have they fixed the world? We're getting better and better or worse. (coughs) (coughs) Some technology has solved some problems. For the most part, it just made it easier for us to kill each other and annihilate each other. I don't think the philosophers have good credentials, quite frankly. Why would you go to them? Why would I go to them for advice on how to solve the most fundamental problems in my life? They failed miserably. They have not fixed either sin or death. All of them are sinners. You find out what's really going on in their lives past all the PR stuff. Facebook can make anybody look good, can make anybody's life seem wonderful. They haven't fixed either their own sin, our sin, or death. The challenge for philosophy is that philosophy goes no further than human reason and logic. And what the Enlightenment was, if somebody, you go, well, talk about the Enlightenment, sometimes you hear the name. Well, that's what happened. Enlightenment was just a period in Western history of the West, Europe and America, when people said, we're no longer going to think that God is the source of truth and knowledge. We think human reason is the only source of human knowledge. And they made the universe go from as big as God is and as big as God made it to only as big as they can think through. Philosophers. They have no authority on the matter of who God is, who Jesus is, and is there a miracle? Is there a resurrection? No authority. Now, some folks dispute the resurrection of Jesus on scientific grounds. Again, they get their stack of science books out and they say, We swear on these stack of science books that God does not exist. There's always, well, what what did Stephen Hawking say about God? Well, do you care what Stephen Hawking said about God? He's a physicist. And he may be a great physicist. Everybody tells me so. But he stinks at telling you about God because he didn't know God. And he would tell you he didn't know God. I'm not being mean to him. If you ask Stephen Hawking, do you know God? He'd say, no, there is no God. So why would you go to him for information about God? He doesn't know God. Scientists will swear on a stack of science books, there's no such thing as a miracle, there's no such thing as resurrection. Again, the best we have to offer you is with all of our experiments, we can tell you you're stuck with your sin and death. Have a nice life. Why would you go to them for anything about God? Why would you think that any of them have any authority to tell you about God? The God I read about in the Bible made a universe. We can see that. Pretty big place. The problem with science, if they're going to try to tell you about God, is they can't put God in a test tube. The only part of the universe they really know about is earth and some light that streams to us from the big universe out there. They don't know hardly anything. And yet they want to tell us with authority that there is no God, there is no interruption of the physical processes in this world. There is no resurrection. Sin and death is all we can ultimately give you. Again, what is their problem? The problem is that their science books that they swear on have no authority on this matter. True science is based ultimately on tangible experiment and observation. And always remember this when you see the science videos, especially the popular ones. They're just shot through with all kinds of statements that have never been verified by scientific experiment or observation. It's full of propaganda. And most scientists know that and will acknowledge it. You see, science has only one thing at its disposal, what they call the scientific method, and it's a good method, it's practical. We're going to observe something, we're going to measure something, and we're going to create a test, and if we can create the test over and over again and get the same results, then we have some factual things that we can operate with. But you see, when they start kicking ideas around about evolution and things like that, those are just ideas, they have no proof. None. Now, they'll tell you all the time that they have proof, but you always got to go, well, where's the beef? If we evolved from lower levels of human beings, how come there's not zillions of the fossils laying around? How come they can't find any? How come most of the ones they try to make to be that just don't stand up under real scrutiny? If science has something that they can observe and that they can put, so to speak, in a test tube and measure and test and substantiate, fine. But kicking ideas around and making speculations and substituting math for physics, that is not science. That's Steve trying to tell you how to fix a machine that he knows nothing about. they'd stick with science and stick within the scope of science, would be great, but the challenge for science is it cannot investigate God. They can't put God in a test tube. There's no ruler big enough to measure him. God is a spirit. How do you deal with that? I mean, they don't even know if there is or what dark matter is, but they want to tell us about God, really? Their authority here is bogus and always... Remember it. Neither philosophy nor science can legitimately make claims in matters that they cannot investigate. Neither philosophy and science can pronounce that there is no God, because God is a reality that is far beyond their ability to measure and deal with. Philosophy and science cannot pronounce that Jesus did not rise from the dead because it is a matter that is far beyond their scope of knowledge and ability. And here's what you must always remember about the resurrection of Christ. We're in a scientific world that blares to us from every corner and every angle that there is no God and we're fools for believing in him. Know this about the resurrection of Jesus. That the resurrection of Jesus, God raised him up again. The resurrection of Jesus is a matter of that is prophetic and historical it's not going to be resolved by philosophy or science it can only be resolved by looking at real genuine prophecy in the bible and that book's open to everybody translated into you know you know not every known language in the world but the, all the big languages it's been translated into you understand and you know and you Evaluate the resurrection of the Christ based on the prophecies in the Old Testament that everywhere portray it thousands of years before it occurred. How do you in 1000 BC in Psalm 22 talk about the detailed events of a crucifixion? How do you have the story of Abraham and Isaac which is core to that book of Genesis, when it's clearly about a father and a son whom he puts to death for sin. And it's a historical matter. Historians can come and they can talk to you about the Gospels. They can talk to you about the history and the eyewitness testimony. Philosophers will just dismiss it. Scientists will mock it. But they have no authority at all for doing either of those things. God raised him up. This is a historical matter, this is a prophetic matter. Go to the places that actually have authority to tell you about the resurrection of Christ. Jesus lived and died and rose. God raised him up. That's a matter of divine revelation. It's a matter of history, and it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of 4,000 years of divine promise, which is why I wanted to put that scope up there again before our eyes, that sort of chart of the historical revelation of the coming of Christ to die and to rise. 4,000 years of divine promise, 4,000 years of prophecy, 4,000 years of type and shadow, all pointing to a crucified and risen Messiah. That is undisputable. Now, you may have Christians or want to be Christians battle about what this passage in the Bible may see, say or that passage, but what's undisputable is they're battling about what? The coming, the death, and the resurrection of Messiah written about for 4,000 years. How do you dispute that? You can deny it, you can dismiss it, but you cannot dispute that. Put your faith there. The Gospels and the Book of Acts are an inspired record of eyewitness testimony by credible men and women who are worthy to be listened to. Don't dismiss that. That is a powerful argument if people are really wanting to know truth. And there's something, finally, that is ultimate and cannot be touched by any of the philosophers or the scientists or anybody else. And that's the personal witness of the Holy Spirit. It is final and it is irrefutable. You sit here this morning and scientists can come up and challenge this and challenge that, and what are you ultimately going to say? Well, I'm not sure I know how to answer that, you know, because I kind of even, don't even know what you're talking about. But this I know, that I know, that I know, that God gave me his Holy Spirit, and the only reason I have this spirit is because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and at the right hand of God. There is no other explanation. The Holy Spirit is final and irrefutable. True faith starts here and true faith remains here. So Peter makes this bold assertion. You killed the Lord of glory, the Prince of life, but God raised him up again. The Jewish leaders had time and time plotted and conspired to destroy Jesus, but God raised him up. Satan filled the heart of Judas to deliver him over to death, but God raised him up. Jewish leaders held a rigged trial with false witnesses and a predetermined verdict, but God raised him up. Herod and his soldiers examined and mocked Jesus and then sent him back to Pilate, but God raised him up. Common Jewish people called for the crucifixion of Jesus, but God raised him up. Pilate delivered Jesus over to his soldiers to crucify him. But God raised him up. Satan in darkness, the Jewish leaders, all the Jewish people did everything they could to destroy Jesus. And God raised him up. It's the power of this. Now, when Peter says that God raised up Jesus, we assume Peter means the Father raised up Jesus. That's what I've always assumed. I don't think anybody would really dispute that. But this issue kind of trails off into the mystery of the Trinity because there are some statements in Scripture that aren't as black as white, black and white as this. Just a few, not many. And they seem to say something else besides God raising him up. However, the majority of the passages are here. They say that God raised up Jesus. I had a couple of the passages. Never mind. I guess I missed a slide or something. A couple of passages where it says, like Jesus himself said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. That seems kind of like, not a contradiction, but in addition to, well, if the Father raised him up, did Jesus have a part in it? Because he said, I'll raise it up again. Jesus said, I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it up again. Those are really about the only two passages that I know of, and there may be more, but that I can remember, that kind of give you a question, well, did God the Father raise Jesus the Son? But what we want to quickly look at is that the, the abundant witness of the New Testament is that it is God the Father who raised the Son. That's how we should see it. When Peter says God raised him up, it's God the Father who raised him up. So Acts 4.10, just a little bit down the road from Acts chapter 2, let it be known to all of you, Peter speaking, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. God raised the Son from the dead. A little bit further in Acts, and the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. So then, again, Peter's trying to say, this is, when Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, here's an expose of that, an exposition of that. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. The God who, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob raised up Jesus. There is this continuity here. Acts 13, Paul, not Peter, but Paul, says God promised to the fathers. I bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So God the Father raised Jesus. As it's written in the second psalm, you are my son. There's that distinction, the father and the son speaking as individuals. This day have I begotten you. Romans chapter 4, 23, 24. Now, it wasn't for, written for Abraham's sake only, that it was credited to him for righteousness, his believing, God, but for our sakes also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Again, it's the Father raising the Son. Romans 11, sort of a passage that some people think might be a little confusing. You know, I, for me, it's not confusing, but... If the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised up Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now it's a passage that perhaps says the Holy Spirit was engaged, and it's true, in the resurrection of Christ. But it's still him who raised up Jesus from the dead. He who raised up Christ Jesus from the dead. The Father is still seen as the primary agent in the resurrection of Christ. A little bit further down in Romans 8, 34, Jesus is he who died, yea, rather, who was raised. And so a lot of times you'll see in the Bible where it's just sort of a passive sense, Jesus was raised. He didn't raise himself. It's not in the middle voice, raising himself. It's in the passive voice, Jesus was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us? Romans 10, 9 is our final little passage to look at you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what that God raised him from the dead you will be saved so here's my authority believe that God raised his son from the dead and you will do just fine you will be saved and I think that means you'll be going to be doing okay being saved is an okay thing It's, it's, it's a great experience and it's eternal so you believe that God raised him from the dead There are other passages confirming this, but Peter's fundamental statement is, in the face of all of this, that you tried to suppress God, to suppress the purposes of God, to suppress the Son of God, to suppress the redemption of God. Satan ultimately behind it didn't work. God raised him from the dead. Well, just to finish here, just a couple minutes. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. The terminology in the original is very interesting. And I I thought it was interesting how the New American Standard interpreted it, because they, they didn't translate it. In the original, it says, put an end to his birth pangs. So all you moms in here, yep, that's what it's referring to. Birth pangs. And at first to me it was puzzling. I mean, I've, uh, gosh, for 50 years as a Christian I remember it. It was, always sounded like an odd statement to me. I kind of knew what it meant. We all kind of knew what, what it was getting at. But what I didn't know, and you can't see it really in any Bible unless you know the Greek and spend your time in the Greek, is that this terminology, birth pangs, that's actually here in the Greek, and he, you know, he, he put an end to the birth pangs of his death. It actually occurs in the Old Testament, and it occurs in Psalm 18. And you have to—it's not in the Hebrew, and it's not in any English translation, but in the Septuagint version, that's what Peter is quoting. Because remember, there's a whole people from all over the world who, many of them maybe wouldn't know Hebrew, but they would know the Greek. Septuagint of the Bible. So that's why Peter it's being presented in the Septuagint. And so if you go there and read Psalm 18, verse 4, the first three verses are about, Lord, you're my salvation. And then all of a sudden it switches. The cords of death encompassed me, and the, the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of the grave, shields, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. And so as you see, I've highlighted chords. It really, basically, that's what the psalm uses, the same word that you find over in Acts chapter two. The birth pangs of death encompassed me. Now, I never have had birth to pangs Never will have birth pangs, contrary to what uh, our society is trying to pass on out there. I'm never going to have birth pangs. Um, No male in the history of the human race will ever have birth pangs. But here he describes his experience, the psalmist, in terms of it. And he goes on, it's a pretty lengthy description, and then it's a pretty lengthy and, and really, I don't know, really vivid picture of God's mighty deliverance of him from this state and to me i'm i'm convinced that this is like other psalms where david is singing a song and talking about and writing about his prayers and all of a sudden like psalm 16 it's the christ speaking and it's no longer david it's the future coming david it's the greater david speaking and that's what you have in this psalm just a picture very possibly of Jesus describing his state of death. So, I'll let let you all chew on that. Some of you can come and rail on me and tell me how bad that is to say. Whatever. But it's quite amazing that Peter quotes Psalm 18. Jesus experienced the agonies, the terrors, the emptiness, the forsakenness of death. He went through it. Everything that we as sinners would experience of death in terms of the punishment due, Jesus experienced. He had to. The difference between his death and ours, if we were to pay for our own sins, is his death was for a time. Our death would be for eternity. It's the pangs of death there. It's an experience of death. It's a continuous experience in that psalm. Not a small one, not a... Not an interrupted one. It's one that he must be delivered from by God. So Jesus experienced this, the abandonment abandonment of God, the physical pain, the humiliation, the giving up of his spirit. He did all those things for us. Hebrews. But we see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste of death for every man. Jesus came into the world to taste death, to sample it, to experience it. It was a real thing for him, you and I, as Christians, will never know it. We will never know what ultimately what Jesus paid for our sin. This is a transaction of substitutionary atonement, it's an operation of grace. It is a dynamic of the new covenant. By the grace of God, Jesus could stand in for our said, our stead and pay our debt. You see, if you had a son or a daughter who committed murder, they're not going to let you go down and say, can I go to the electric chair in his place? Even though you may want to, they're not going to let you because there's no law, there's no dynamic that would let you do that. You can't pay for his sin. But in the grace of God, in the new covenant, in the realities and the dynamic of the covenant of God in Jesus, Jesus can make that transfer. God can make that transfer. By the grace of God, he tasted death, not for everyone, but for all. the. When you get to verses like this, go look at the ASV. <clears throat> That's all I can say. And it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And we're just going to, I guess, have to stop here and pick it up next week and then get into Psalm 16. So all I would say to you is if you know Jesus Christ, he's tasted death for you. God has raised him. There's a book God raised him over your entire life, over your entire future, over your present, over your past but God raised him up. If you're not a believer, here's where you go for salvation. You young folks, you're growing up into a big world. You're growing up into a complex world. That's why you're supposed to be learning the things you're learning, by the way, at school. So that when you get to that world, you can figure it out and not be duped by it. You can have your place in it. You can make a contribution to it. But this world, I mean, some of you are anxious and so like, I want to get out and be my own person, and that's a good thing. As long as you're ready for it. Just remember, you've got to be ready for it. I, you know, if, if uh, I was to tell you I'm going to go play football, you know, for the, the 49ers, what are you going to tell me? Uh, yeah, yeah, you're not ready. You've got some things to do before you go do that. Because you go out there the way you are, you're going to get squashed. And so, kids, you know, you guys getting up there you, you want to get out into the world but let your parents help you be ready for it. And what I had to say to you was for some of you this morning is as you go out there in that world they're going to come up with all this fancy stuff and tell you that Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead you're silly to believe in that. And you've got to be able to look, back, look them back in the eye and with every bit of confidence and say so you're telling me I'm stuck with sin and death that's it that's all you got for me? You've got to be able to say that to them. And say, Jesus Christ came in the world to save me from a problem you can't even imagine to begin to fix. Sin and death. And that's where I'm putting my faith and hope. As for the rest, hand me the test tubes and we'll keep on doing science in God's world. So why don't we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again for your word. That there is a, but God raised him from the dead and this is everything, this changes everything for us. Lord, let that be our confidence, our hope, and Lord, let it be our mainstay. And just pray for everyone in this body. Satan's always going around trying to cast his fairy dust or throw his fiery darts out there. And Lord, we would always have confidence that you've given us your Holy Spirit, the ultimate testimony. But that the Bible is a credible witness. The prophecies cannot be refuted, they cannot be denied. They are there, and they will always be there. And Lord, we just have our confidence in your word and divine revelation, and just pray for the young people, the young people here, Lord, that they will, as they grow up into this crazy world, that they will have the confidence of your word that there is a true and living God, that the universe is a stable place because you made it so, and Lord, they will have every confidence in you and not be pushed around by the bigotry and by the bullying of science and philosophy.